Cool. So, as I mentioned, I normally do get the privilege of getting to lead the church through music and worship and liturgy every Sunday, but this Sunday I actually get the, the distinct pleasure of getting to lead us through Hebrews 11, verses, uh, verses 20 through 22, as we continue in our series, By Faith. And so we've been unpacking just this one chapter of this New Testament text, the book of Hebrews, as we go through what the author of this book has for us in concerning teaching about what it means to live as God's faithful people. And so the thing about this book of Hebrews, though, is that although it's just this this one book and it's one chapter that we're looking at, this one chapter actually makes generous use of what's called the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, as we call it. And so before we get started on our text for today, and as we arrive at kind of the halfway point for this series, if we aren't comfortable or if we aren't familiar with, or if even worse, we think that our Old Testaments aren't necessary for us as Christians, we can start to get kind of bogged down in these stories. We can kind of start to check out as we keep considering these Old Testament stories. And so before we start specifically on Hebrews, I want to I bring to your attention some stuff about the Old Testament and about why I think it's so important for us to, to want to read it and study it. So if you're investigating Christianity and you don't know much about the Bible, this, uh, this big book, is actually, it's a collection of a bunch of smaller books, originally scrolls, and it was written by a variety of different authors. They were all inspired by God and his spirit to put on paper what he'd said and the experiences that he'd carried them through. All these books are organized into two main sections. There's like three quarters of it, which is the Old Testament, and then there's this last quarter of it, which is the New Testament, or as you've more likely heard it split up as the scary, unnecessarily long part, and the nice Jesus part with the scary bit at the end. <laughs> no, but really, whether you're, you're a, whether you're a Christian or not, I'm sure you've heard something along the lines of that distinction when we talk about Bibles. And Christians in the room, specifically, how many times, if we're being honest here, have we sat down to read our Bibles and, you know, we wanted something quick, we wanted something easy, we wanted a nice lesson that we could take into our day, and so knowing that, we immediately gravitate to our New Testament. Is that just me? Because I've, I've definitely done that. Or maybe you're better than me, and you actually sit down to read your Old Testament. Maybe a few verses or even a chapter. But depending on where you happen to drop into the story, you might have left your reading feeling either confused or, or puzzled or, or sometimes maybe even troubled at what you found because we just don't know so much context. And if that is you, that's totally okay, because I've definitely experienced that. And the New Testament does really seem a lot more accessible for a variety of reasons. I mean, the the culture in which it was written is is way more similar to ours. The, The language is way more conversational. And it really feels like the authors, a lot of the times, are talking to you mainly because of all the times the authors say you when they're talking. In, in the Old Testament, it is full of, of confusing language that oftentimes we don't get, confusing imagery that sometimes can be, frankly, off-putting because we're just not in their culture and we don't get the image. And it's in a culture and people group that are just so vastly different than we are. And that's just the surface of what makes Christians usually not want to touch their Old Testaments. But As someone who has gotten the chance to really dive into studying the Old Testament through school, I've come to really love it. And so I hope to impart to you before we start just a couple reasons why I think it is so important that we want to read it. And the first reason is, you'll see on the screen, is that the Old Testament is Jesus's Bible. This alone, this framing, this way of thinking about it for me alone was really helpful in in making me want to read it. Because if you think about all the stuff that Jesus would quote, reference, and, and cite, 
It's all Old Testament. And as a Jewish boy living in a Jewish city, this is the text that he would have grown up with. This is the text that he would have been reading and meditating upon. This is the text that he had upon his heart as the Son of God. And so just this way of framing it, that the Old Testament is Jesus' Bible, that alone should get us a little bit interested in wanting to read it because he read it. But the second one is, is really, really moving to me because there are actually two texts in the New Testament that show us that the Old Testament is part of a unified story that is all about Jesus. The whole thing, it's about Jesus. And so the first text I want to show you that kind of tells us this is in the New Testament. It's by Jesus himself. It's in Luke chapter 24. And it's him talking to his apostles after the resurrection about what he did and about what they are to do in light of it. He says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, this, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, that's a common shorthand that they would have used for the whole Hebrew Bible, the whole Old Testament, because that's how it was broken up. And so what Jesus is saying is that the whole Old Testament contains writings about him. And these scriptures that he opened their minds to was the Old Testament. And that message that Jesus says was written, the Christ suffering, the rising, the repentance, the forgiveness of the nations, that's the gospel. Jesus is saying that the entirety of the gospel in that clarity can be found in the Old Testament. That's just one text, but the second one is from Paul. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's when he encourages him that all scripture is breathed out by God. And that's a great text for us because it's one of the main ones that we look at when we say that this book is a divine word, that it is totally inspired, that it is a word from God for us. But what we don't often consider is what the scriptures, the Apostle Paul, are that he's, he's really talking about. It's, he says it in the verses beforehand, in verse 14 of chapter 3. He says, but as for you, Timothy... Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now we have to pick up on this church. At the time of Paul's writing, there was no New Testament in circulation. There were no accounts of, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Nothing was getting distributed. And so when Paul references sacred writings, he's talking about the Old Testament. And what he has said here about the Old Testament is that this, these three quarters alone, they're able to make us wise for salvation, and not through some vague promise, but specifically through faith in Christ Jesus. So just with the Old Testament, we can get a sense of who Jesus is and of the faith that we need to have in him. And now I say all of this because Hebrews as a whole, like I mentioned, it quotes the Old Testament over 30 times. The Old Testament is the foundation of the author's message in the book, and without it, he has nothing. It's three quarters of our book, and, and what is found here about Jesus, I believe, is, is really worth all of the study and, and the effort and the learning that it may require to read it, because it for sure is not an easy read. And so that being said, let us begin our journey into a few more stories of the faithful people in the book of Genesis. Today, as we're covering Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph in our text. So you'll see it on the screen. I'll read it again. 
says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, if you don't have a Bible, I forgot to mention, we always say here that you are going to need one because here at Grace Point, we lead, preach, and we teach from the Bible. But also, this, this book, it's, it's just incredible. Honestly, it's beautiful, it's intricate, and it really is worth the read regardless of where you're coming from today. Regardless of if you're even interested in following along with me today, I, I beg you, please take it home. It is a work of art if you just let it speak to you for what it is. So we have those in English and in Spanish here at the front uh, if you want a physical copy. And we have digital versions as well. There are a ton of free Bible apps you can get. The one we use here is called Version. If you download that, you click events in your profile. All of these sermon notes should be there under the Grace Point tab. And so back to our text for today, those are three short verses. But if you're unfamiliar with the book of Genesis, what you wouldn't immediately catch is that in those three verses that we're going over today are actually packed in 26 whole chapters, yet chapters of the book of Genesis. And if you know anything about the book of Genesis, those chapters can get really long. And so we've got quite a bit of ground to cover today. There's some stuff that we're definitely going to gloss over, but what I want to do is just give us a firm understanding of the stories of the three people mentioned in our text today. So all transparency here, this first half might feel a bit like a history lesson, but we do have to all be on the same page here when we consider the message. We have to know who they were, what they did in their whole lives, so that we can get the full context for what the author is trying to tell us today about living by faith. Does that sound good? Cool. All right. We start with Isaac. You'll see his text on the screen again. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And so who is Isaac as we begin? So as a reminder, Isaac is Abraham's promised miracle child, Abraham and Sarah's child. Uh, Pastor Ty spoke about them a couple weeks ago. Now, Abraham, got to remind, is is the chosen man of God. This is the man who receives the promise of God. He has the first covenant with God, covenant relationship with him, where he receives this promise that through his seed, through his offspring, the nations are going to be blessed. Israel is going to be blessed. He also tells Abraham that he's going to take his people into a foreign land, but then he's going to bring them out and he's going to carry them to the promised land. All of that from God is given to Abraham. Now, the kicker in the story is, as we arrive at Isaac, is that after Abraham receives his promise, God then asks him to sacrifice this promised seed that he's just given given to him. But it's really important to consider why Abraham was going to go through with that sacrifice because Abraham's beliefs are really going to affect the beliefs of, of the three men we're looking at today. And so if we go back a few verses, Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed in verse 19 that he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So that's why Abraham was going to go through with this, with this sacrifice of Isaac. So that's extremely important to keep. So keep that in mind as we move forward. So on Isaac, though, in this story, I don't think he gets talked about enough, if I'm honest. I, recently, I kind of see a trend about talking about the faith of Isaac in this situation. But still, I think it's worthy to note that we think that Isaac must have been about 15 in this story. Abraham would have been close to 100. And the dude could have literally either... I don't know, fought his dad off, kind of muscled him down, at least run away from his dad if he wanted to. Um, 
But, but he doesn't do that. He's the, the willing sacrifice. He was going to get up on that altar. Genesis 22, as it shows us kind of him and his dad walking to the place he'd be sacrificed, says that Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? He still doesn't even know. (laughs) Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now, after that, if you keep reading, it says that Isaac got up on the altar, that Abraham really was about to take a knife to his neck, and then God intervened at the last second. And so let's say Abraham had good reason to do this. We covered that. It says he believed that if he did it, God would would raise him from the dead, right? Sure. Still, we we never really get a lot of insight into what Isaac might have been feeling in this moment. I mean, if we put ourselves in his shoes, can you imagine that? Like, if that was me, I'd be terrified of my dad for the rest of my life. Like, the next morning, dad's just like cooking in the kitchen. He has a knife. He's chopping onions or something. And he's like, Isaac, come help me with breakfast. And you're like, uh, maybe not. (laughs) But, um, I don't know. Maybe that's just me because that's actually not what Isaac does. Uh, As as you'll see, um, this act of faith by Isaac is, is just the beginning of what's going to be a life, if even imperfectly, lived by faith. See, as he continues his life, the Bible tells us in chapter 25 of Genesis that Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And so contrary to his father Abraham, he didn't take God's promises into his own hands. He simply prayed to the Lord for the fulfillment of them. But, as we'll continue to see, his life was not without failure. He did take some things from Abraham in that he was a bit of a coward. He, he offered his wife to, to foreign leaders as his sister because he was scared that they were going to hurt him. It says in Genesis 22, that I, sorry, Genesis 26, that Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, for he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. And so this dude was willing to offer his wife just so that he wouldn't get hurt. And so leading up to this blessing that our text is referencing today, we see that Isaac, based on all the stuff he did, he was just a man. He was a faithful man sometimes. He was an unfaithful man at other times. And so we have to consider why the author of Hebrews, when he gives us this example of what faith acted out looks like, he gives and emphasizes the fact that Isaac blessed his sons concerning their future or with future blessings. Now, a bit of important information we we don't get here, but we do get from the actual account of the blessing in Genesis, is that when he did this, he was old. He was was close to dying. He even says it in Genesis chapter 27. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. And so what was the blessing that he blessed them with? Genesis 27, 28 through 29 tells us that for Jacob, he says, may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth, plenty of grain and wine, Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And now the important pieces for us to take away from this blessing are the nations bowing down to him and that those who bless him will be blessed. Because if we know Abraham's blessing, these are pieces of that same promise that God gave to Abraham, who Abraham reaffirmed to Isaac and who Isaac is now reaffirming to his son Jacob, the younger brother, as he nears the end of his life, knowing 
that he personally is not going to see the results of this blessing. And so, as he was nearing his death, he blesses his younger son over his older son, and when he dies, we're given this key phrase that tells us that this may not mean anything to us, but in their context it would have, that overall, Isaac is seen to have lived a faithful life. It says in Genesis 35 that when he died, he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. This is the same send-off that his father Abraham got, that he died old and full of days. Keep that phrase, because it's important. And so why was this, this blessing, the act that the author emphasizes as having been done by faith? Well, we'll get there, because now we have to move on to our next character, Jacob. So Jacob, his son, Isaac's son, gives us a bit of context to this act of faith that Isaac did. And so this Jacob guy, he's, he's a pretty big character in the Old Testament, if you know anything about it. He's the last of that trinity where they say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he is the man who literally wrestled with God. Like, Do you ever stop and think about how crazy that story is? Because it is bonkers. Uh, if you're curious about it and you don't know about it, it's in chapter 32, if you want to read it for yourself, and lots of smarter people than me have talked a lot about it, uh, and I don't have time to cover it right now. But he's also the man who will be renamed Israel. He's the guy who fathers the 12 sons of Israel, who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jacob is basically the official start of the nation of Israel. And not only that, he is the child who God ch- chooses to continue his promises given to Abraham through. It tells us that the Lord says to his mom, Rebecca, when she is going to conceive in Genesis 25, says, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. And now all of this taken into account seems like a pretty solid foundation for us to say, Jacob's probably going to be a pretty good dude, right? Well... Uh, what we need to know is that from the jump, literally from the beginning of his story, this man is a deceiver. Like, he is a liar. He's a, he's a cheater. And, and by the beginning, I don't mean like as a kid. I mean literally coming out of the womb, he's a cheater. And you're like, well, Brandon, how could you possibly know that? Well, the Bible tells us that. It says that when he and his brother Esau are being born, Jacob comes out, they're twins, clutching at his heel. You're like, okay, cool. And so they name him Jacob because if you see in your Bible, there's a footnote that says the name Jacob literally means he clutches at the heel. But if you see another note in your foot, another footnote in your Bible, it'll also tell you that he clutches at the heel is like a Hebrew idiom or a turn of phrase that they would have known to mean he cheats. And so literally they name him he cheats, telling us that from the beginning, this dude is going to be up to no good. And his life definitely, it, it backs that up because the first thing we see him doing then is conning his brother out of his inheritance, like his literal birthright as the firstborn son. He cons him out of it. It's, it's a crazy story, but basically Esau, his brother, he's a hunter. And he comes home one day, he's exhausted, he's tired, he's so hungry. And Jacob, he's depicted as this stay-at-home brother. They even say that Esau was hairy and Jacob had like this really smooth skin. I don't know why, but they say that. Uh, and so Esau gets home, he's super hungry. He asks Jacob like, hey man, you just made some soup. Can I have some of your soup? And Jacob, being the industrious businessman that he is, doesn't respond with, yeah, I'll give you soup if you take out the trash, or you pick the berries next week, or you maybe feed the chickens. He says, I will give you a a literal bowl of soup if you give me your inheritance, your your whole birthright. And Esau must have been pretty desperate because he he ends up doing it. And so through these kind of exploitative means, Jacob takes for himself what God said would be his, but Jacob does it his own way. 
And that's just the, the beginning of his antics. Because next, we go back to the scene we referenced earlier, where Isaac blesses his sons, Jacob and Esau. But what the reference in Hebrews doesn't mention about that blessing that he gives to his son is that the one for Jacob was actually meant for Esau. And so Jacob kind of takes the blessing of his brother. And now this was what God wanted to happen. As we saw earlier, he said that the older would serve the younger, that the younger was going was gonna to be the father of the nations. But in this case, Jacob lies. And he takes that promise into his own hands and he gets it through deceitful means. He lies to his old and blind dad, going so far as to put on lambskins in case his blind dad wanted to feel if it was actually Esau he was blessing because, you know, he wasn't hairy. So he puts fake hair on his body just to make sure that his blind dad believes that it's Esau. And to cap all of this off, you know, he continues lying and, and tricking people through his life, but we see that he's actually the first character in the Bible as God's people or, or one of God's people who officially takes two wives for himself, which is, is explicitly condemned by God. And so as he neared the end of his life, it can be easy to think that he kind of got off easy because of all the good stuff he did. But we do get an indicator that his ways specifically were not approved of by God. Because if you remember, Abraham was said to have died old and full of days. Isaac was also said to have died old and full of days. And if, as you'll soon see, Joseph, our next guy, he also is going to die old and full of days. But Jacob, this, this man of deceit, he kind of stands out as a sore thumb in the narrative because he doesn't get the same send-off. The author actually says nothing about his death, and Jacob himself is the one who has to say in Egypt, he says in Genesis chapter 47, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And so that would have told them as compared to the other characters, that this guy did not live a good life. But the author of Hebrews insists on adding him in this list when he says in our next verse, verse 21, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now, there are a couple important points of note here. So we have to ask, well, what was this blessing? And so we have to go to Genesis 48 to see when Jacob actually gives the blessing. You'll see it on the screen. It says, now the eyes of Israel, that was Jacob, he got renamed, were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced, him, embraced them. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his arms. It would have done this. For Manasseh was the firstborn, and he blessed Joseph. He said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So here, we see again that like his father, Jacob is old, he's going to die, and he blesses Joseph's sons, his grandkids, with the same blessing of Abraham and Isaac. He continues the promise of God that, that he has not and will not see the fruits of when he tells them to grow into a multitude. That's a key part of the promise of God. But why the mention of the crossing of his arms then? 
Well, that's another important point that we see given more context in the way that Joseph reacts to how Isaac blessed his kids. It says in verse 17 right after that, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. And so Jacob, old and blind, by faith in God's purposes, he, he crosses his arms, he gives his right-hand blessing to the youngest and his left-hand blessing to the oldest, contrary to what Joseph wanted, contrary to the custom of the time, but following in God's promise. And then finally, we're told that he bowed in worship on his staff as he died. And so all in all, uh, a, a man of deceit and lies and deception, he blesses his grandkids at the end of his life, he dies worshiping after a short life full of evil. And so again, we must ask, why is the author pointing us to this act of faith specifically as the example to follow? So stay with me here. We're almost there. We've got one more story to cover, and that is Joseph. Joseph's story is front and center in the last 13 chapters of Genesis, and it is by far the longest, most in-depth, and detailed story we have in Genesis of a single character. And now personally, through my study for this message, Joseph has become one of my favorite biblical characters. I mean, that dude was incredible, and there's so much that I wish I could go through. I wish we had a whole sermon series just on Joseph, but unfortunately, I, we don't have the time for that today. And so what I'm going to do is just key in on a few very specific things that Joseph does, and, and the story shows us about him, to show you just how faithful this man was leading up to the blessing that Hebrews has chosen to include. And so... Right off the bat, Joseph is special because in his story, he's presented in many ways, we can see as Christians, as being really similar to Jesus in everything he did. You listen clearly and see if any of this sounds familiar to you. His story tells us that he's a shepherd who's especially beloved by his father, that he suffers at the hands of his own people, in this case his brothers, they sell him into slavery. Then he's imprisoned for doing no wrong of his own because of the lies of someone else. But by the end of his story, because the Lord is with him, he's taken from this lowly and humble estate and he's raised and he's exalted to the highest seat of power in the land, to the right hand of the king, and he has authority over all things there. That's in Egypt. Once he's raised to power, he, he freely forgives the people who harmed him, his brothers, and then he reconciles with him. And in being in this position of authority, he becomes a blessing and physical salvation for both Israel and Egypt as he takes them through this seven-year famine that attacks both of them. And so again, that was a super surface-level summary of his life, but I'm hoping that just through those facts, just how, with how similar he was to Jesus, how good he was as a man, you can see just how special he was in accomplishing God's purposes in his life through the right means. And so what does this have to do with our text? Well, finally, after that incredible life, after all the stuff that he's done, the author of Hebrews says that Joseph, by faith, in verse 22, at the end of his life, he made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Hmm. Kind of weird lives like this whole righteous life, and then the author of Hebrews thinks that the best thing that this dude did is mention the Exodus and tell them what to do with his bones. 
Well, here's the, the actual mention in, in chapter 50, so we can maybe get a bit of a sense for why this was so special. You'll see it on the screen. It said, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And now, super important in this blessing is God visiting them and taking them out of the land. Now, can we guess where he might have gotten that blessing from? Does anyone have any guesses? Abraham? Anyone? It's, it's Abraham. And so that, that's the same promise that he gave to Abraham. That's what he said he would do in taking his people out of this foreign land and bringing them to the promised land. But still, we have to ask, why? Why does the author of Hebrews, when, when elaborating upon these three examples of faith, lived out with, with thousands of years worth of staying power, with so many things that he could have referenced in their lives, why does the author point us to this as the example that we need to be seeing to live by faith? Well, there are a few common threads that all three of these stories have, and I hope that by pointing them out, we can kind of tie them together and get to the point that I think the author is trying to make. And so the first thread here that I see, you'll see on the screen, is that all three of these blessings come from men of prominence. Now, this is important. These are three men of, of immense stature, status. They had honor within the Hebrew culture. These were, these were big men in their culture, and rightly so, as, as they lived lives, as we saw in some way or another, full of, of righteous acts, worthy of following. Isaac was the faithful sacrifice. Jacob wrestled with God, and he fathered a nation, and Joseph, he was the faithful man who became a blessing to the nations and, and saw God's purposes come to fruition in them. And yet none of those things are mentioned. And so the first common thread, they're prominent. It's very important to consider just how stately these men were. The second one is that all three of these acts took place at the end of their lives, all three of them. It doesn't say this explicitly for Isaac in Hebrews, but as we saw, Isaac was old and he was about to die when he blessed as well. And what's important about this thread is that this means that all three of these men knew that they wouldn't see the results in this life of the blessing that they were having over their people because they were going to die. See, there was, there was no planning that they could have done at that point to attain it on their own. They weren't in their prime anymore. They couldn't have tried to take God's plans into their own hands. They were literally on their deathbeds. They were going to die. And so this ties us all the way back to the beginning. When I said that Abraham's reason for, for sacrificing Isaac was important, do we remember? He, he believed that God would raise him from the dead. Well, the faith of these three men, it rests upon the same foundation because what they've done, it points us to something that transcends death. Because they knew that though they were dying, they would still inherit what God spoke of even after their death, that death did not have the final say in their lives or the lives of their family. This is especially clear to us in, in Joseph's blessing because it tells us that he gave them instructions to, to move his bones. He was so confident in God's blessing that he gave instructions for what to do, not if God's promises took place, but when God's promises took place. And so the third common thread that I have that's important for us to take note of is that all three of these guys, they blessed others. But they did so not with what they had to offer, but with what God had to offer. See, 
they could have blessed with, with a myriad of things, a variety of things. They had possessions and wealth and land and animals. They could have given them and blessed them with anything they could think of. But they knew that the highest and most precious thing that they had to offer wasn't theirs to offer at all. It was God's. It was his promises. Because if we read all three of those blessings and we take note of the patterns here, we notice that all of these blessings, the healing of Israel for the world and through their offspring, it's all the same promise from God to Abraham. They never give something that isn't God's. And this promise, if you're listening to it, it culminates in the healing of Israel, of the world, and the nations that takes place in Jesus. This promise is a preface to the gospel. And so what these men knew in their hearts was that upon their death, when they could give no more, they knew that the truest and the greatest blessing that they could leave their family, their people, was simply a reaffirmation of God's good news. And this is where we arrive for our, our main point today. Yeah, after all that, there is actually a, a point that we have to this. I think it's the answer to, to why the author of Hebrews has pointed us in this direction and showed us these stories back to back. And that main point for you today, if you're taking notes or you want to take something home with you, you'll see it on the screen, is that living by faith isn't about your prominence. It's about God's promises. Because we see that though these men had status, these men had power and possessions, and they did righteous things, none of it mattered when it came time for the author of Hebrews to write for eternal purposes what it was that really set these guys apart as having lived by faith. And that was that they didn't live with their hope or their treasure or their joy set on what they had done or what they provided, but on what God would do. See, this is nothing new though, church. What I'm, what I'm saying here, this idea of, of living by faith, it's, it's nothing more and nothing less than living a life that believes that the gospel, that the whole gospel promise that Jesus God's Messiah is God become human to bring to completion his eternal purposes in restoring his beautiful creation to its former perfection and to overcome all evil in all forms forever and ever. That gospel, the story from Genesis to Revelation, it's a life believing that that story is true. Not a life full of works, not a life of helping those around you, not even a life lived being a good person. And now, for Christians in the room, that, that sounds simple. You say, yeah, Brandon, I know that for sure. But you say, we say that, but when the rubber meets the road, if we're honest, especially us, we get really tripped up about what it actually means to live by faith. And we oftentimes can be the quickest to start inserting our works, for good or for bad, into our very salvation. Like the eternal condition of our souls in God hanging in the balance of what we can or can't do. But as, as the whole Bible testifies, this, this just isn't the way that it works. And these men, in their acts of faith, they don't let us do that because they display perfectly two sides of this gospel coin that I think we always need to be acutely aware of. First, from Jacob's story, it, it's important to note, we remember that at the end of his life, we saw that God manifestly does not approve of his actions and that he did not live a good or righteous life overall. The old and full of days was given to the others, but he gets a short and evil life. But what I believe this shows us, you'll see this on the screen, 
is that your bad works aren't keeping you from God's promises. Hear that today. Your bad works are not keeping you from God's promises. You see, Jacob lived a life full of deceit and sin and evil, and yet at the end of it, he felt confident in his inclusion within the Lord's promises. And now on the other side of this gospel coin, from Isaac and Joseph, the men who did live faithfully their whole lives, what we see in that, in Hebrews, is that your good works, they aren't getting you God's promises. Okay? We, some of us need to hear that too. See, at the end of their lives, when they blessed their people, they didn't rest upon how what they did would bless their future generations. They rested upon what God had promised even beforehand, things that they had literally nothing to do with. And that is the scandal, church. That it was never about what we could do, but it was always about what God was doing, is doing, and would do in and through us and for us. You see, good works in in our personal lives of faith, they serve as as guardrails. They're gifts given to us, prepared for us by God to keep us on the path of Jesus. But these works, they are not the path in and of itself. And they are not the destination. You know, if if you've spoken to me, though, any, any amount of time about the Bible or about Jesus, you know that this rubs me the wrong way sometimes. Because I'm the type of person who loves to to encourage us to live in the kingdom of God now by what Jesus enables us to do, to, to actively pursue justice for the oppressed and to you know, take care of our earth and our natural resources and to help the poor and to really love one another in real and tangible ways. But if I'm being honest, this, this gospel rubs me the wrong way because what it does is it strips me of all of my self-righteousness. It shows me that none of that really matters to God when it comes to to saving his people, that it's about his promises and not our prominence or what we can do. Isaac, Jacob, and show us that living by faith, what they show us about living by faith, sorry, is that at the end of our lives, all we can do is we leave our people and we carry our hope into eternity, is just, just throw ourselves wholly, not on our works, not on what we contributed to society, not on the justice that we brought, not on the lives that we lived, not even on the people who we loved, but wholly on God's promises. Those are the only unshakable thing. Those are the only things that don't go away. But for us, church, it's, it's, it's not just at the end of our lives, because we know the gospel. We have it with us now. Because what if, what if we were to do this now? What if we could every day wake up and believe, not because of our prominence, but his promises, that he will do what he said he will do? See, the Bible time and time again in the New Testament tells us to live as if Jesus were coming back soon. And so what if we lived by faith, waking up believing that all of God's future promises would be fulfilled today? Jesus died and rose and sent his very presence in the spirit so that we would have a full and clear assurance, that we would have a guarantee to know without a doubt that as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's Jesus. And so let's, let's believe those promises and see how it transforms us. Because what, what if we believed or lived believing that if God said that he would carry each and every one of his sheep home in his arms, bruised, and spotted, stainless, or lost, that he will do it. 
What if we believed that if God has promised that there will be justice on the evil of this world and what humans have brought upon it, that there will be justice on every oppression and injustice and murder and abuse, that he will answer for them, that he really will do it? What if we believed, church? Would our faith be a little less flaky if we believed that if God promised that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, would we be more secure if we believe that he will do that work? Because he is going to do it, not, not us. We, we, we don't get to, to bear those burdens. Jesus has borne them all on our behalf so that we could do what this series is all about and live not, not by the burdens of this life, and not based on, on what we can give, not based on our prominence, but on his promises by faith in our Lord Jesus. And so join me in, in prayer today, church, as we close, and we'll go to the table together. Father, you are eternally good, eternally loving, eternally faithful, Holy Spirit, impart upon us. Let it rest deeply within our souls that everything you do for us, is about, it's about your promises. Impart your faithfulness into our souls. Let it be the thing that moves us every day to know that you are faithful, that you've not left us, that you will follow through on everything that you've said. Jesus, thank you for, for living a life holy and perfect on our behalf so that we could have the guarantee that it will happen. Thank you for rising from the dead so that we could know that we too one day will rise from the dead. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. I pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.